0: Hi, George. Welcome to Red Femmes. Thanks, Acton. Episode two of Red, as in well-read Fems, as in feminist. Text and talk. I sound like an AM radio host when I say that. <laughs> well, you kind of are. Aren't you? I, I, I so am. It's always <laughs> been my dream to be on AM. <laughs> Well, tell us, George, what is today's show about? The title is The Opposition is Coming from Inside the House When Women Disagree About Feminism. And that is a reference to that horror film where babysitter is taking care of the kids and she calls the police and they say, We've traced the call! The call is coming from inside the house! Ah! Oh, that movie freaked me out when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember it.
1: Yeah, so we're going to look under the big, noisy tent of feminism and see some of the rival feminisms that claim to be speaking for women's interests, and how even, even if we can agree on what a woman is, we may not be able to agree on what women want or need most. But first things first. All right. We'll start with our Q&A. Today's questions are, what personality trait has gotten you into the most trouble, and what aspect of your personality has changed the most between now and when you were younger?
0: Take you're it gonna, away. You're going to go first.
1: What? Me? Yeah. Well, what's gotten me into the most trouble in the past was a kind of shyness that arose from being an emotional sponge. I have a very overactive empathy muscle, and I just pick up on everybody's emotions in the room with my amazing emo radar. And that can make (laughs) me keep myself to myself and not speak up because the worst sin when you're an empath is to hurt someone's feelings or to disagree and cause them discomfort.
0: How relevant to today's episode.
1: So when I was younger, I get myself into the classic, I said yes, but it really meant no kind of situation. I did that all the time and it was rotten and I would overcommit. I would say things I didn't mean. I would go along with the crowd But this has definitely changed over time, uh, partly because I married a man who has no problem saying no to people. That was very attractive. (laughs) about him. He easily speaks his mind. And I've always been drawn to female friends who are outspoken, like you. Uh, So over time, that boldness and those boundaries have kind of rubbed off on me, and I'm learning to speak up, and it's been a long time coming. So when I was younger, I'd get myself into trouble by not speaking up now. That I'm in my 40s and graced with my first gray hairs, I'm going to get myself into trouble by speaking up on this podcast. You so
0: are. It's your fault. Thank you, George. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm honored to be a terrible influence. (laughs) Because yes, I'm a talker. I've always been a talker. I love to talk. And all my report cards, when they would give the comments in every class, it didn't matter what class it was. George, that's obviously they didn't call me George. George talks too much. This (laughs) continues to this day. Uh, I can't. I often cannot resist telling someone what I really think. Occasionally, that like veers into pathological honesty, which is not always good. In today's divisive atmosphere, it can have serious consequences. But I've also arrived at the point where I've decided that I won't let fear of possible repercussions silence me. Because there's this attitude, oh, if I speak, this will happen. But you don't actually know what will happen until you speak. And it can just be really liberating to say aloud in public what you think. And you don't often have... You don't even have to give your name as we don't do here. So, That's true. Um, In terms of what's changed, I think as much as I come off as someone very committed, opinionated, forceful, I think I have a much greater capacity than I used to to actually be sympathetic, mm. to meet people where they are, to accept, to listen. I'm much more humble in many ways than I used to be because life can be hard, even cruel. And when you've been through something really dark... You come out with a sense of gratitude and a respect for suffering. And so as a younger person, I think I had a strong sense of what we'd call self-righteousness. I knew it was right. and I could tell people what was right. Yeah. And I think I went through a phase when I was a teenager where the only thing I would ever say in response to my parents was, I know. <laughs> I just hated that. Which is probably not an uncommon phase, but like now I, I don't, I'm not like that anymore. And my, my new motto is, don't believe everything you think. Oh, that's really good. Because I don't. That's really good. Cuz uh, if you can't make room for the capacity to change your mind, then you can't you can't grow as a thinker. Mm. You have to leave that space open to be like, "Oh, wait, maybe that's not true." Question your priors.
1: Wow. That's so interesting. I feel like we've come from sort of opposite extremes and are kind of meeting
0: mm-hmm. in the middle
1: cuz the the lesson I had to learn was how to how to dial up the the volume on my own beliefs and opinions because everyone else is so loud compared to my own inner thoughts and conscience and so like I had actually I had to learn like oh I can believe what I think and I can say what I think oh my gosh you know but like they're, they're both true but depending on where you start from yeah you come to the other side
0: yeah and I don't think I would have arrived at this point I think most people don't ever arrive at a point where they question their priors until they've had an experience that provokes it
1: yeah because it's so uncomfortable because it's
0: just it's not normal you just you just think you know what you know and it's only when you get a a forceful sort of input, whether it's from, you know, your social life or your work life that makes you think, oh, wait, I I thought that, you know, I thought that I shared these common beliefs with everyone I knew or interacted with, and then you find out you don't. So yeah, I think it's, it's not normal. I don't think most people walk around being like, I'm going to question my priors today. I think it has to be the result of some sort of encounter. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I find I trust people a lot more if they've had some experience like that usually some form of suffering that has made them introspect and change something about where they started from like those are trustworthy people to me
0: i'm not going to disagree (laughs) all
1: right well let's uh
0: let's turn to our first text um how do our readers know what we're reading because we post it on the Substack stack redfems.substack.com where you are listening to this so you already know where it is Generally, when we do the post for one of these recordings and we post the, the conversation, we'll also post the next episode, you know, preview post about what we're going to cover in the next episode, because we want you to be ahead of us or with us, right with us. Yes. All right. Well,
1: we're going to be discussing several articles from a special issue of a magazine called Radical Notion. This issue being entitled Gender Critical Disputes. And we're discussing a response by a woman named Maya Forstetter. And actually, we'll, we'll start with her.
0: Okay, so she wrote a blog response. Who is Maya Forstetter? She was a tax expert. And this is going to sound like a really boring story, but it's not. And she was a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development, CGD. In 2019, her consulting contract with them was not renewed after she published a series of social media messages describing transgender women as men during online discourse regarding potential reforms to the Gender Recognition Act. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with all this, <laughs> with the entire issue of transgenderism in the British context, it's a crash course. So the Gender Recognition Act is an English law that allows people, mostly men, let's be clear, to legally change their sex when they have satisfied certain conditions. And I'm not going to go into what those conditions are, but it's basically, it's a law that allows for a legal fiction to take place. So Forstetter challenged the non-renewal of her contract at the Central London Employment Tribunal. The Center for Global Development is based in London and Washington, D.C., so Forstetter could do that. She could take this up in an English, essentially an English court. Uh, in December 2019, a hearing was held to establish whether her beliefs qualified as protected under uh, U.K. law in this time. In this context, in this, this time. The Equality Act of 20, of 2010. All English laws are just, like, named, like, normal. <laughs> They're so straightforward. It's like, <laughs> what the law is, year it was passed. <laughs> Equality Act <laughs> 2010. Mm-hmm. The judge in that case ruled that Forsetter's views were not protected, saying that her gender-critical views were incompatible with human dignity and fundamental rights of others, and, and this was the quote that made the rounds, not worthy of respect in a democratic society. So that didn't go well. Wow. So she appealed the judgment, and this was heard by the Employment Appeal Tribunal in April of 2021, when the decision was issued that June, it reversed the original judgment, thus stating that gender-critical views are protected beliefs. It's worth noting that the tribunal clarified that this finding does not mean that people with gender-critical beliefs can express them in a way that discriminates against trans people. And if you followed this, the details of Forstatter's case, she wasn't saying that she wasn't going to respect people's pronouns in the office. There was This was completely... This is just her, her acting on her personal beliefs in her personal life. The issue was, does she have this right to, to make this speech in a non-work context? And in March of last year, a full merits hearing on Forstetter's claim that she lost her employment as a result of these beliefs, the Employment Tribunal upheld her case, concluding that she had suffered direct discrimination on the basis of her gender-critical beliefs. That basically mm-hmm. means... The, the tribunal says, yes, you fired her because she said this thing. And those are protected beliefs, so you shouldn't have done that. Right. So this, as you might imagine, this entire situation changed her career. her had in the past done some advocacy around gender-related issues. She had been a part of a campaign called Let Toys Be Toys, huh. which was, had fought against gendering, to use that word in the non-illage sense, gendering toys for girls, girls and boys mm-hmm. toys. So she co-founded the advocacy group Sex Matters and serves as its executive director. Sex Matters was founded in February of 2021 and their mission is, I'm gonna read from their website, we campaign, advocate and produce resources to promote clarity about sex in public policy, law and culture. We have a singular mission to reestablish that sex matters in the rules, laws, policies, language and culture. So she's a well-known player in the gender critical movement while she's not named in the special issue, it's more than appropriate for her to respond. She, she knows all these people who they do talk about. So I think we should start there because her response is shorter. And I think it'll help us make clear to our audience where the dividing lines in this debate are. Because the longer pieces are long. We'll get our toe wet first before we go deep down. Sounds good. Do you want to read some quotes? Yeah. All right. Quote number one.
1: The criticisms of Kelly J. Keene, Kathleen Stock, Helen Joyce and Mary Harrington are long, personal, wrong, and tedious. I just don't recognize much of what they're describing, and it would take me far too long to explain why. The articles vacillate incoherently between we are not the same movement and we are mobilizing as a collective.
0: She also says, I think the reason the authors end up making long-winded and unsatisfactory arguments is because they start out from an idea about the world that is fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) Not mincing words there. Yes. <laughs> and she quotes the first line of the editorial statement that starts off the entire issue of radical notion. This 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 special issue. Patriarchy is not universal and it is not inevitable. It was developed by people through historical processes for the material purpose of controlling and appropriating women's bodies and labor.
1: And Forsyth replies to this by saying, I think the idea that the thing called patriarchy was overlaid on top of and after the evolution of human bodies and minds is just as untrue as the idea that men can become women or the nonsense that the binary system of gender is a western colonial export
0: go on (laughs) one more While,
1: while i recognize the painful split that jane describes her division of the two teams into true feminists and gender critical identitarianism is off the mark I think what we are seeing is the contradictions of a philosophy that does not make sense. It envisages a world where male violence is universal but not biological, where women's and men's interests are negotiated on a sex class basis, where family can be replaced by collective, and where prosperity exists without capitalism. It is another case of when ideology meets reality.
0: So that is a really interesting turn of phrase. So that phrase, when ideology meets reality, is the subtitle to Helen Joyce's book, Trans, which was an amazingly popular book. And it's about what transgenderism is from an ideological perspective. It's about what happens when we instantiate in law this belief that a man can be a woman in law and culture. What she's getting at here is she's saying she's actually comparing this brand of feminism to trans ideology by saying you can start with these premises, but when they hit the ground running, something happens to them and they don't bear the fruit they were supposed to. They don't work out the way you want them to. Yeah, You can believe something in theory, but it may not make sense to others based on how they view the world. And so this is a on-the-ground pragmatism that motivates uh, Forstetter and other campaigners to rather shrug off the criticism of these radical feminists.
1: Right, and so she says, uh, in a choice between being part of an ideologically pure sisterhood and pragmatic and effective impact, I would choose impact.
0: I think that this divide is about, at its most basic, the notion of patriarchy as it relates to the notion that someone can change sex or feel like the other sex. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'd say for most women who have joined the gender critical movement, patriarchy is irrelevant. Yes. It's just not, it doesn't pertain. The, this issue of transgenderism, or as I usually say, cross-sex identification, or even when I'm in a particularly combative mood, <laughs> cross-sex fantasy, this issue is about fanciful notions that sex change is possible, and it's about the, the direct harms that result from taking that notion seriously in culture and in law. Yeah. Mothers see their unhappy daughters now convinced that taking testosterone and cutting off their breasts is the answer to their problems. Mm. Women see themselves unable to insist that changing rooms and hospital wards, even prisons and rape crisis centers, remain women only. So these are direct harms. Yes, The fight is against these harms. And so, yes, it is against the people who want to leverage these policies and those who defend them. And so let's be clear that some trans people do not defend these policies. So it's not necessarily against... It's personal, but it's also more than personal. So the radical feminists who are contributing to this to radical notion do see the direct harm of these policies. That's why this episode is so interesting. Because we are talking about women who actually agree with us that these harms are real. Yes. They call it gender ideology, just like we would call it gender ideology. Yes. And they, they say that as saying, this is bad. Gender ideology is bad. But their philosophy of how the patriarchy oppresses women doesn't allow them to make the same direct critique. Mm-hmm. The patriarchy is an institution that oppresses women, and it does so via what they call gender. This is so non-illigent, it almost makes me cry. So, But gender to these radical feminists is the mechanism, is stereotypes and the pressure to conform to them. So when you have a group of men who want to dress like women and be treated like women, these radical feminists are philosophically obligated to defend them. Because what these men are doing, from their standpoint, is defying the stereotypes of gender. Yes. And that activity has to be defended because to say a man that a man has to, quote, look like a man is just to repeat the same evil that the patriarchy commits against women, right? It tells them, you know, it tells women you have to look like X or be like Y because you're a woman. It's this trap, right? And in a broader sense, as a movement of the left, which these feminists consider their movement to be solely of the left, feminism cannot be seen to be judging or marginalizing, as they would say, a minority group. (laughs) The feminists of Radical Notion does have to walk a very fine line between accepting transgender people and lobbying for clarity about sex and law. They want the law to reject the possibility of sex change, but they want a society where trans people are accepted. And so they see the anti-feminist turfs, that would be us, Mm -hmm. as acting on animus and attacking transgender people. And I don't know if you followed this whole thing that just happened with Michael Knowles... Daily Wire, right? Yeah, okay. and he gave this speech about how transgender ha- has to be eliminated from, you know, society completely. And, Ooh. of course, that was taken as... I mean, because if you... The argument goes... All the and genocide it, stuff. Well, but also, that like, if you'd said that about anything else, like in the classic example they go to, and we have to do something about this later in some podcast, in some episode, but, like, they always go for the Jews. And I can say this because I'm Jewish. They always oh. said, if you said that about Judaism, you know all hell would have broken loose, right? Because you know, oh. imagine somebody saying, "We have to el- eliminate Jewishness." Oh gosh, from- right? Okay, but of course, okay. you know, that's assuming that all these things are equivalent, right? And that's another discussion. But anyway, yeah, it's not. It's it's easy to argue that his statement comes from animus because it's yes. an it's an animus adjacent or an yes. animus fully involved statement. I, I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to defend Michael Knowles. Yeah, don't. But um, so but this is the main critique that these radical feminists level against. Kelly J. Keene, who calls herself a femaleist because she, she, feminists were saying, you're not feminist. And she's like, okay, I'm not feminist. I'm a femaleist. And so she puts it on t-shirts. It's great. So we believe in reading. We don't want to close our minds to what other people say. We're taking the time to read all these articles. So well, it's important to confront this. You know, that's, I want to read these articles. You know, Forrest like, it would take me too long to explain why. We are going to try to explain why. Excellent.
1: Yeah, and I I think that Maya is right that the core disagreement within feminism is a philosophical one. And there are are two sentences in her article that perfectly capture the need for philosophical coherence. So I'm going to read those two. She says, I want to defend the word and the concept of woman, not just female. And she also says, Language is an evolved, hardwired risk appraisal protocol. So too is the ability to see things, say what we see and recognize patterns. So both of those quotes demonstrate this threefold pattern of how people do sense making and engage with the world. The world is intelligible and patterned. We can recognize those patterns and those patterns form concepts in our heads. And then we can use language to express those concepts, to say what we think and to say what we see. And there's this, this ancient and medieval conception called uh, the semiotic triangle. It's an Aristotle, it's an Augustine, it's an Aquinas and many other places. And the semiotic triangle is the relationship between the thoughts in my head, the words coming out of my mouth and the world that those words and thoughts map onto. So the three points of the triangle, you know, you can call them different names. It could be concept, word and world, or put another way, subject, sign and object or ideas, language, and reality. And so anytime you have a breakdown in this dynamic process and kind of feedback cycle between subjects, words, and objects, you're going to end up in crazy town of one kind or another. And part of the disagreement within feminism and also between feminists and trans activists and those who oppose them is that you've got some people who've just lost touch with physical reality. They think that all we have is the thoughts in our heads and the words that we used to talk about them. And there is no sense in which reality can just object to you. Rather, you just impose your thoughts and words on the world and you shape it to your ends. And you can tell that folks on that side can easily fall in love with technology and use it to remake the world and the human body to be how they want it to be. Because in this view, biology doesn't speak to us. Bodies don't speak. They're just stuff that we can manipulate. In this view, what's really real are our abstract ideologies and our words that have power. So all we have are the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we impose on other people. So I would say that the patriarchy is one of those stories. And, and so is the story, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. You know, th- these are stories that are not tethered to the ground of reality. But then you've got this this other side that claims to give us, you know, just the bare facts with with no interpretive meaning attached as if we could somehow bypass our own inherent subjectivity, as if our minds weren't framing the world based on our cultural assumptions all the time, which is something we all do. And there's no escaping it, you know, and and these are the look between your legs, stupid people who think that you can just directly map a word onto a thing without your subjective and enculturated self being involved in the process. And it's it's this assumption that the world is obvious and all we need to do is just call things what they are. So someone like Matt Walsh is going to fit in that category, <laughs> you know, or the Daily Wire in general, right? Like they just assume this obviousness about everything. And, and perhaps others who are really focused on science and want there to be just They want everything to be really objective and crisp and clear cut, you know. So I have more sympathy for this approach, but it's still a problem if it's by itself. It's not enough. So I think both of these approaches are inadequate because they leave out a portion of the triangle. And it's part of what I like about Maya Forstetter is that she wants to keep all three of these aspects together. So to quote her again, she says, I want to defend the word and the concept of woman, not just female. So she's insisting on keeping the word woman. Uh, The cultural concept of womanhood, a.k.a. gender, and the material reality of woman as female knit together flexibly, not not in a really rigid way, but just all three pieces. They have to be talking to one another. You can't cut anything out. And so the feminists writing in The Radical Notion are irritated with Maya and Kelly J. Keene for insisting on keeping the language of woman instead of yielding that word to men in dresses because these feminists downplay the importance of words. They're also irritated with Maya and Kelly J. for wanting to maintain a concept of woman that's rooted in the biological realities of pregnancy, childbirth, and evolution because these things highlight women's inherent vulnerability that has nothing to do with some mystical patriarchy of psychic domination, which One of them uses that phrase psychic domination Mm. by men. It's not about that. It's about sexed bodies. And these feminists are also irritated with Maya and Kelly J for wanting to guard womanhood as a culturally meaningful identity. So they just kind of sneer at them and call them identitarians. But identitarian is not fitting for what, these women, including, you know, Mary Harrington for what they're doing. It's it's just that some gender-critical feminists are really in love with their story of the patriarchy and classes and oppression, these sort of abstract ideas in their heads, and they don't like others pulling them down into the gendered realm of words and the uncomfortable truths about our bodies. Because ideas are clean and pretty and perfect and they're not messy, like net feminism Mumsnet, is gritty yeah. I, I and think rooted. that's
0: where, uh... I think that's where Kelly J uh, became radicalized. It was Mumsnet like just seeing, you know, the rubber meet the road, so to speak? There, yeah. Mumsnet feminism means how does this work in the real world? How does this affect my daughters? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. That was it for Mary Harrington too. She was looking on Mumsnet, and what she saw really opened her eyes.
0: Okay, so let's 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 uh, critique the radical notion feminists uh, using their own words. Let's dig in here. Okay. I'm going to quote first from the editorial statement uh, written by Rose Rickford. Rose Rickford says, Gender identity activists claim that feminism must center the needs of male people, and they persuade some women to join them in this crusade. This feminism is not about women's interests, and thus being being a feminist comes becomes an identity quite separate from a commitment to women's liberation from patriarchy. So they're saying women who support, women who say... There's no feminism without trans women. We're on the same side of that as, right. the gender, as, the, as these radical feminists. Right. So, well, just read the quote. This is the article she writes after the editorial statement. This is feminism and femalism. Feminists understand that resistance to gender identity ideology is part of a broader feminist politics of women's liberation and that alliances should be made on this basis. There are multiple reasons for opposing gender identity ideology and not all of them are feminist. Now, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Some are based on, for example, moral disgust at gender nonconformity and a desire to enforce traditional gender roles for male and female people. These are fundamentally different and oppositional political aims to those of feminists. It therefore makes no sense to create political alliances with people who have these goals. So that's really, that's against like all the Matt Walshes and the... you know that they're saying if you want to put women back in the traditional wife box, if you assume women are heterosexual, you're you're not that you're not a feminist. You're just you're you're reacting to, for you, gender identity is is just a, another version of people not behaving the way they're supposed to.
1: Right. And but and there's an irony to to being upset with conservatives, I guess I would say for for thinking that when the acronym is. LGBTQIA+, plus. like, they're coming as a package. They bill themselves as a package, you know? And so, but then but then there's this sort of, these feminists are saying, there's there's actually a split here. These are not the same things. And yet, a lot of people do lump them all together. And so, I'm kind of like, can't you forgive conservatives for thinking that they all belong together? <laughs> you know, when that's how they're being billed all the time, as one big lump. So, I'm not defending or, against, right. or saying against that. I'm just saying that's, You know, they can be forgiven for thinking that when that's the that's the billing.
0: I think the the key passage here is moral disgust at gender nonconformity. And so there's this very visceral notion in radical feminism that the patriarchy manifests itself by saying women uh, have to conform. And so there's this sort of instinctual reaction to defend people who don't conform. Okay, um, and and yeah. the thing about the what I call the alphabet, get it? <laughs> yep. Is that there is no such thing as a person who fits all those things. Like, for example, you can't be lesbian and gay. Right. I mean, let alone all the other things. Right. <laughs> I feel like to the extent that the alphabet term has meaning, it's a shorthand for anyone for which you could feel moral disgust about.
1: Yes. Which yes. is
0: really problematic when you think about it.
1: Because there are things that are worthy of moral disgust. I think we would all say that. Right. And there least, are there's some things.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I'm always <laughs> saying on I'm always saying on my blog that like deviance has not gone away, right? Like there are still behaviors that are deviant. I have this theory that the reason that gay rights has been so successful in this country is because you can still be morally against homosexuality. And I feel like I am not against homosexuality, but you cannot remove that outlet. You cannot, in a free society, where people are going to have, especially religious views that are have not changed, have not shifted on this position. Mm-hmm. A lot of churches have, but there is—you don't gain anything in an open, democratic culture for telling people you cannot object. the 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 law that they just passed, the federal law, uh, guaranteeing that gay marriage is legal in the entire United States was based on a Utah law. So this comes out of a compromise that the, <laughs> Mormons, the Mormons themselves brokered, which was like we are going to live and let live. We're gonna have the acknowledgement of civil marriage and we are not going to we are going not going to go out of our way to tell anyone who doesn't agree with this that they're wrong and reprehensible and, and subject to sanction. Okay. That's the compromise. Okay, so that, like, you can get married, but don't try to make the religious
1: person bake your wedding cake. Let, let them, we'll let you be, and you let us be.
0: It basically, like what I said before, it allows for moral disagreement. Yes. It allows for there to be disagreement at the heart of the matter, the moral heart of the matter. Like, you don't, it's saying, you don't have a right to someone else's approbation. You have a legal right, but you don't have a right to, for someone else to agree with you. Wow.
1: But that's what this whole discussion right, so, about is, is about affirmation, is that they yes, want the affirmation.
0: But that's why it's so insidious that we link the transgender issue to the gay rights thing oh. because the premise of the trans activists is no debate. And that's not how we got gay rights. And to say that, oh. like, it's just so sad. Because, so it's a
1: self-defeating approach to try
0: to... Well, yeah. And also the fact that to say that, you know... When tra- we're when making the claim that transgenderism is there is for in some aspects of there is a heart of it that remains deviant and like sexually deviant, like autogynophiles, okay, I'm going there. But to say that then to object to that is ju- is the same thing as objecting to home objecting to homosexuality is basically to say, that homosexuality is deviant. And didn't we get past that? Ah. In the sense that aren't this, in the great compromise of our nation, legally, socially, that this not deviant? It's this very fraught problem of putting all these things together. Because they're not together. Right. And to the extent they're together, it's actually probably worsening our discussion of gay rights. Because, you know, yes. a lot of people consider transgenderism to be very homophobic. Because you can't have same-sex attraction if right. there's no such thing as sex. Uh, sex. Yeah. Right. And there are plenty of lesbians and gay
1: men who insist on the reality of sex because they're like, I know it when I see it. Right. And like, I know what I'm
0: attracted to. Right. it's not that, like, you right. can't fool me. Right. And <laughs> also, you know, you can't, why is a man, al- a man allowed to go on a lesbian dating right. site if he's, just because he says he's a woman? That's not fair to, I mean, women don't like that. Because <laughs> they don't want to <laughs> sleep with men. Even if they don't, <laughs> even if the men say they're women. It doesn't change anything <laughs> right. for the women. All right, so what is femalism? Who is <laughs> Kelly J. Keene? Kelly J. Keene is a women's rights campaigner or activist who has been speaking out against men in women's spaces, the transition, as it's called, of children, uh, and the erasure of women-exclusive language, starting with a billboard that got taken down, of course, but it made her... It put her on the map. Uh, she raised these funds to put up a billboard that gave the dictionary definition of women like woman it said with the phoenix and then adult human female she started a youtube channel she's been in this i think i want to say since 2017 basically so she's not new she started monthly events at a place in Hyde Park known as speakers corner this is in london at these events she simply lets women who come and men if you wait till last <laughs> she lets them speak they could say whatever is on their mind about this issue and they things that they often can't say anywhere else, whether that's at work or even in their house. Mm. She's the leader, but not the focus of these events. And then she started taking these all the events all over England because people were like, oh, I can't get to London. And then last summer, she did a tour here in America. She went viral, actually, before her tour. She came and she went to see um, Will Thomas, the swimmer, the trans-identified swimmer, Leah ah. Thomas. Swim at the NCAA's, the championships. I didn't know about that. And she's like shouting, he's a man. and she, <gasps> From the and, stands. Oh yeah. And there's this clip that <laughs> she's went so she, naughty. She hasn't, <laughs> she, I think she'd been like, she's a man and he's a man. And then somebody next, somebody next to her said, are you a biologist? And she said, I'm not a vet, but I know what a dog is. And that went viral. <laughs> That's that went awesome. viral. Okay, um, so she did... So during the American tour, she had a film crew following her. And she's just released a documentary that was filmed during that trip, which is free on YouTube. So she's no Matt Wall. She's not trying to profit off of it. And as we speak, she's down under in Australia doing another Let Women Speak tour there. she's going. She's going to go all over Australia. She's going to go to New Zealand. So to call her controversial would be to put it mildly. She is loathed. I mean, there is... There was this whole effort to try and get her visa revoked in Australia. Whoa. Like, to not even let her in. Because <laughs> she's such a contaminant. Because <laughs> she's, she's such a problem, yeah. Wow. So trans activists loathe her. And obviously, all these radical feminists loathe her, too, because they, even though they ostensibly agree about these dangers posed to women's legal rights by trans activism, by its goals, they don't like her approach. They think she's... they. Sh- they think she's wrong in her approach because it's they feel it's personal. Okay, so the, the disagreement revolves around, this is real, we're going to talk about materialism now, we're really going to get into it. So this quote, we're still in, uh, we're still in Rickford's uh, piece here. Feminism is something that any woman can join in with, regardless of what material change she wants to see in the world. This is very different from feminism, which, as we've seen, seeks to change the world in ways that makes women's lives materially better. Femalism has no position on making the lives of women and girls materially better. This is not its aim. So, so go for it. Yeah,
1: I want to respond to this because um, there's a sneaky keyword hidden in there. Oh tell me, and it's the word better. Oh, it's really loaded. I we were so, gonna go for material. <laughs> the Rickford is saying that real feminism wants to make the lives of women and girls materially better, but what does better mean? So better is a synonym for progress. It implies some notion of the good, some goal or endpoint towards which you are moving. And this Uh, hidden assumption of the good is also embedded in the phrase women's class interests which gets thrown around in these articles Mm -hmm. too and you know but what are you interested in except that which you perceive to be the good Uh, but the question of what is the good both for women and for all people is a deeply philosophical and religious question which i have yet to see radical feminism clearly answer they just presume that people agree with them um, that really bothered me as I was reading through our articles. Oh, it was yeah. like they kept throwing out the word better and, you know, women's interests. And I'm like, what women's interests? What, what interests? I, I don't agree with these interests. Why are you speaking for me? Why do you assume that I agree with, with this material betterment that you're talking about? And I, I think that Mary Harrington is probably right that when feminists talk about things being better for women, what they actually mean is that the good is, to quote Harrington, ever more freedom underwritten by technology. So instead of defining the good, which requires positing that people in general and women in particular have a nature which they may or may not fulfill, they substitute the good with freedom itself. And that's the cop-out of liberal autonomy. You know, we don't want to be bound by nature, including a gendered nature. So we'll just say that, you know, the freedom to choose whatever the hell you want to be is the good. And it's a way of just wiping the dust of nature off your feet and proceeding apace to whatever future you want. As the writer Nathan Robinson puts it, freedom means that nobody expects you to be anything in particular or care when you're not what they expected. Mm. And this freedom is then synonymized with the good with better with women's interests. So while Rickford is trying to make this distinction that feminists care about women's lives being materially better and femaleists somehow like they have no opinion on it, or maybe they don't even care about women's lives being better. I think it's a false dichotomy between the two because she's begging the question and she's not addressing the fact that women have fundamental disagreements about what the good is because They disagree about whether women even have a nature and what that nature is. So, granted, there's some low-hanging fruit on the question. Like, yes, all women can agree that being free from rape and the fear of rape is unquestioningly better and good. But with something like abortion, women deeply disagree about what the good is when it comes to reproduction and freedom and the duties of care. So, that's just something to keep in mind as we go forward. Like, what what are people assuming better and sex-based interests mean? So...
0: I mean, the, the thing about it for me is that girls not being encouraged to cut their breasts off or keeping a hospital ward single sex, how is that not material? Yeah, that's that seems very concrete. super material to me. Yeah. Like, it is not philosophical to say, I want this space to be for women only. That is really material. Like, a material interest in that sense, me, like, this movement is about being gender critical is about saying, I, these things have real material harms and I want them to not be there. Like concrete embodied harms. Concrete embodied harms. Yep. So that, so material interest there I think is, uh, Mm -hmm. and they must mean it in this sort of like materialist, Marxist Marxist way. way. Yeah. I think so too. But that's the thing though, because ultimately this falls down on the fact that most women are reconciled for better or worse to capitalism. Yep. And, so they don't see the solution to men coming into their locker room as fixing capitalism. No, they see it as—it's very different. It's—they don't see it in that in that vein. Um, okay. What what else can we say? Um, okay, let's get deep into um, femaleism here. Femaleism. This is still Rose Rickford. Femaleism's con- concern is with the language that people use to describe themselves, over and above the materiality of their lives. For femaleists, having men use the term "woman" to describe themselves is in and of itself an existential threat. This is not the feminist critique because feminism is clear that the word woman does not affect whether someone is the woman is a woman. Having men use the term woman to describe themselves is inaccurate and we may find it offensive, but it does not make them women and it does not change the materiality of sex. Women's sex-based interests are therefore protected so long as sex is recognized in law and policy as a material reality that is not altered by claims of gender identity. Feminists have therefore focused on gender identity ideology and its effects on law, public policy, and sex based spaces. Femalism, in contrast, considers trans identification in itself to be the threat. This shifts the focus from gender identity ideology and its political effects to trans identified people in themselves. So that's the criticism we have to take seriously because. Well, because of the Michael Knowles thing, right? It's yeah. like, is, is objecting to this being hateful or is objecting to this, my instinct is to react, well, that's not what this movement is asking of us. This movement is not saying, let's just expand the definition of what it is to be a man. A man can wear a dress, a man can blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this no. is not what this movement is. Trans no. activists are not asking for that. No, it's not asking at all to
1: expand man. It's saying it wants to intrude into woman.
0: Feminism is clear that the word woman does not affect whether someone is a woman. That's great. That's true. But how is saying everyone can... You can be a woman if you want to, but when it comes down to the law, we're going to just remind you, oh, but you're not a female. It just won't happen if you change the language It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. So this is what you were talking about. This sort of, you know, if you pull out... You can't pull out one... No one pillar of the three language of the yeah. three prong stool here. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's why they're they're trying to say, well, kind of like we'll throw them a bone, let them have the word, and then we'll keep the the reality of sex. It's like you give up any of it, and then the whole thing's gonna fall apart. You know, so I feel like there is a sense that. It is existential, not necessarily because language itself is existential, but because language is embedded in this semiotic triangle and they all in conversation with one another and you rip one piece out and then that feedback cycle of how do we make contact with reality? How do we conform to what's real? If we can't have the language piece in there, we will we will, you know, we'll fall off the fence of sense making. We will not be able to do it. All right, well shall I read quote number seven? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Feminists are opposed to gender identity ideology because it erases women as a political category, and that matters for feminist political work. We see objectification of women as harmful, and that includes men performing eroticized projections of womanhood. However, we do not believe that pronouns, clothing, or names alter whether someone should be considered a man or woman in law and policy, and thus we do not believe that these are in and of themselves threats to women. It is possible for a man to wear a dress without objectifying women and without demanding access to women's spaces. It is also possible, and extremely common, this is a good point I agree with here, mm-hmm. for men to objectify women without wearing dresses or calling themselves she. Male dominance is our target, not gender nonconformity. We do not attack groups of people, including people who identify as trans.
0: Maybe there could be a society where you saw a man in a dress and you didn't think that person was going to walk into your, walk into your bathroom. That could be. Okay. If that were so, <laughs> That'd be, then okay. we could probably learn to live with that. I mean, sure. the women wouldn't really like to learn anything. The men would have to learn something. Right. But right now, when you see a man in a dress, you, the, the where we are in this right now is that man is going to want to use your facilities. Right. That... That's what it, this is what this debate is. This yes. debate is not about men in a dress. That's this right. debate is about where the man in the dress goes. That's right.
1: Yeah, because then the, the, the word woman and the dress and all of that are symbols for the fact that he will have access to spaces that, in which women could then be harmed.
0: It's not even about harm. I mean, that's the, the rejoinder to that is right. like, oh, you think all trans that's people weird. are predators? it's no. like, no. I don't want my husband in my locker room. Right. <laughs> right. And I trust my husband. <laughs> Yeah. It's not about the fact that he's good or bad. It's about the fact that he's male. Right. You know, the larger sense of this is just a sense of custom and violation of custom and privacy and dignity. I mean... Yes. You know, in countries where there's a large Muslim population, like in Europe more so than here, we have a large number of Muslim immigrants, a lot of the services like spas and stuff have a, have adapted and they'll have women-only days to accommodate women who are not allowed to sort of, you know, be in a certain state among men. So you'll have women-only days. But if you then change the law to say that anyone can be a woman, those women can no longer use those facilities ever. Right. Right. Because... And you functionally discriminated right. against exactly. certain
1: religions. Yeah.
0: Right. So there's conflicts here. And that is, not a, that is not a question of harm in the sense that, you know, you could assume the most well-meaning... Yep. You could assume that nobody was a predator had any bad intentions. But it's, it's, it's still, for the perspective of, like, I'm not allowed to be in a state of undress with male people... It's still an overturning of custom that then, you know, has that, that fallout. And it's about the reality of the fact that you know these customs aren't arbitrary.
1: That's these right. These customs
0: when you, a woman a woman when a woman sees when a woman is naked and sees a man that's not the same as being when a woman is naked and sees another woman. And you can't that's think right. yourself out of that. No. It's not arbitrary. These things, like you're saying, they go back to your body. Once you reach puberty, a woman's reaction to seeing, to being naked among, it's, it's visceral. Yeah. It's not, it's not about bigotry. It's, it's not, not about any of those things. It's not about gender nonconformity, for Christ's no, sake. No, it, it exists at an animal level in
1: terms of just safety, right? Like it's, yeah, it's instinctual. And so, and that is at the basis of those later cultural forms of various kinds that flow out of that and become customs. But yeah, it's rooted in the body.
0: Let's move on to an article, the next article in that, in that issue. It's by Jane Claire Jones, who is really, you know, active in this space. She's a very outspoken, gender-critical activist. But she's definitely, she definitely doesn't like Mary Harrington. <laughs> <laughs> her loss. Yeah, right? So this is uh, her article. Feminism is not identity politics. Transactivism, gender-critical populism, and the culture war. She says, looking at the discursive battlefield now from the edge, what I see is anti feminism coming from all directions. On one side, of course, we have the newfangled techno patriarchs with their veneration of patriarchal gender projections and obtuse erasure of the material reality of sex based exploitation. On the other side, there is now an assemblage of good old fangled patriarchs, the theocratic fascists rubbing shoulders with the anti woke libertarian bros and the reactionary post liberal feminists. And that's where we're going to go with this, right? The reactionary post-liberal feminist, who does she have in mind? She says in the footnote, I am thinking here especially of Mary Harrington and Louise Perry, who have both claimed the label reactionary feminist, and to some extent Kathleen Stock, who, like Harrington, has described her thinking about women's issues to be post-liberal. Post-liberalism centers around a rejection of the atomistic nature of modern society and its ideals of liberal individualism and notably often indicts feminism for being grounded in ideas of liberal autonomy. I would, of course, argue that radical and materialist feminisms are grounded on precisely a critique of such an ideal, but that, unlike post-liberal thinking, we consider liberal individualism to be but one manifestation of a generalized, patriarchal veneration of masculine self-sufficiency. Post-liberalism, however, is much more indebted to a type of one-nation, high-Tory image of a pre-industrial, paternalistic community in which patriarchy is envisioned as a type of beneficent accommodation between the needs and interests of men and women. Bluntly, women have babies, and men support and protect them. That's a lot of verbiage right there. (laughs) So, again, the the radical feminists here are trapped, right? Yep. Uh, They're both, she writes off both liberal individualism (laughs) and the Harrington-Perry version of post-liberalism, right? They're both patriarchal. I wish I didn't have to say that word so much. It's hard to pronounce. (laughs) Patriarchal. Patriarchal. (laughs) patriarchal, Not patriarchical. I'm putting an extra syllable in there. Great.
1: I think that it just comes across as really arrogant. And I think that's part of why the more kind of populist style feminists call academic feminists elitists. Because there's this undercurrent, the the sneer that you, you know, towards children and towards, you know, women's bodies as they relate with children and women who love being mothers and want children. You know, they're, they're portrayed as this, as this sellout, as this. Oh, is is that all you're gonna do? You know, and it's just it's looked down on, and so yeah. I mean, I, I definitely from this from this author as well as multiple authors in the pieces we read, that sneer was really there, and 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 yet they complain about how oh the populists are you know are kind of mad at us or, or dislike us, and it, we shouldn't be called elitists. And I'm like, well, you're playing right into their argument,
0: mm, mm. you know. There's this tension that doesn't allow these feminists to acknowledge the needs of the majority because they're very, very aware of the costs that they feel are borne by people who reject that, the mainstream. Yep. Um, and that is a real concern. It is. But, I mean, that, the, the thing about that is is that it is, being a minority in society is a complicated thing. And I feel like we don't, we don't have a political language that really effectively, or maybe a cultural paradigm, that effectively deals with that. Because part of being in a, a minority is accepting that your status, that you're not going to have the same experience as a majority. And for me, this was, that was always being Jewish. Really? And it was really strange, because I, I grew up in a very Jewish part of the country, which is the Bay Area. But on my block, I was the only Jewish kid. So I had this very different idea. Like, I just felt isolated in that way. Well, part of it, because my mother never took me to a temple or anything. So I didn't have a Jewish, a Hebrew school education or anything. So I felt like a huge... It was only when I was in high school that I was like, wait a sec, this place is full of Jews. But it really felt like, oh, I'm different. I felt like somebody, you know, a, a Jew living in a Christian nation. I feel like my upbringing was about orienting yourself to accept that and to sort of, you know, measure expectations like that you, you were going to have a different experience. Yeah. And that was just like, you had to just reconcile yourself to that. You had to learn how to live with that okay. difference.
1: So it's, it's more of like a stoic approach. Like I can't change the way the world is, but I accept this is kind of how things are and I'll adapt myself to it.
0: It's a minority experience. Yeah. 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 You You have to sort of realize that, you know, you have to look at the positive side, which is that you have rights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah, the cops are always out there when there's a high holiday service, because that's the sad world we live in. But you have a right to worship. You have a right to associate. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's just a very pragmatic approach to, you can't expect the experience of being in a minority in some way. And most of us are minorities in some way. You can't expect that to the, approximate the experience of the majority It's just not going to feel the same. That's just life. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like there's something in sort of the, the mood of democracy that is a leveling mood. Right. Mm. And so, you know, so we could all have sort of equal, we all have equal rights, but, but just, yeah. But the fact of being uh, on the, on the periphery or in the margin instead of sort of the center, it feels, it feels hierarchically arranged. And so I think there's a, a desire to lean into, well, if this is my experience, it must be because there's some system that's oppressing me, you know? Mm. Um, and it's kind of like concretizing what, what is just sort of a, an inevitability of there being a norm and an exception. That's just, that's a feature of reality is that- Distribution. Yeah, you have various distributions of things and that all, that happens all throughout nature and we're also part of nature and so it also happens just with people. And it's really uncomfortable and we're committed to democracy. And yet there are always going to be these inequalities and differences of, of frequency, you know, of, of the bell curve and, and of numbers. You know, there's going to be the tails who don't who don't match with everybody. And it is it's hard to know how to deal with that. The only way that I know how to deal with that is through uh, the religious approach of like, well, that's what that's what the spirit of charity and love is for. Mm. It's that the center loves the margin. And cares for it. I mean, literally, like, this. it's in the Old Testament, that idea of, like, okay, you harvest from your fields, but you leave the edges
0: for the gleaners, right? Like,
1: it's that idea of, like, you show awareness to the foreigner and the stranger in your midst, you know, you take care of the orphan and the widow. Like, you be aware of the people who do not fit the system and the norm, and you make provision for them out of of love, because I'm the God who tells you to do that, and I saved you. And I know how that's, how you could ideally approach that from a religious perspective, but from a purely, like, secular perspective policy perspective or something i i don't i don't know how you deal with that except religiously
0: but. right because the sort of progress notion oriented notion would always be like oh we need to make sure that there are no gleaners it's
1: right very we should often, be
0: able to get rid of the exception yes, right yeah,
1: right really. if we had the perfect society there would right. be no there, there more be margin no
0: ex- yes yes, it's yes. Like, and i
1: feel like there's a in this sort of like groundedness of what is reality really like it's accepting there will always be some kind of margin or periphery always, you know, and so that means you are always, well, I would say, then you are always called to love, you know, it's not to erase the margin and now everything's like perfect. It's like someone's always going to be there. Something's always going to be there. So it's always your job to be kind, you know, but not to create the perfect system that eradicates the, that it will happen
0: it's the secular people who actually have the fantastic vision and it's yes. the religious people who have the reality based vision and it's so funny because right isn't that the irony <laughs> is that yeah, it is. you know atheists will be like oh you believe in God and that's not real so it's like <laughs> it's like wait a sec who is the believer in the fantasy right. and who is the believer in the reality exactly it gets, that's a great point it gets crossed <laughs> so Jones here comes back to um, you know, reaffirming this line that they have to walk between being gender-critical but being trans-accepting. She says, People seem to have forgotten that the original gender-critical point was that men who wear women's clothes or use women's names or even take she-her pronouns are not thereby made female because being female is a material fact distinct from all the social trappings of woman identity. Women, we said repeatedly, are not an idea one can simply identify with. Women are no more or less than adult female people. And being female is not a thing that can be attacked and not a thing that needs to be defended. It simply is. What needs to be defended is the recognition of female people or women as a class in law, the organization of public services and public policy on the basis of sex, and the right of women to organize and speak politically as a sex class. That is defending women's material class interests, not defending womanhood. And I think you and I both think that this distinction is... It's like, it's valid in a thought world, in yeah. a thought experiment world, but it's not valid in this world. Not practically, no. I mean, not at all. Being female is not a thing that can be attacked. Being female is totally a thing that can be attacked. Absolutely. <laughs> like, this defense of reality is not enough. You know, do you know Colin Wright's substack, Reality's Last Stand? Yes. I mean, yes. he's a he was a biologist who basically yeah. kind of got canceled and were like, you know, Or maybe he realized that he didn't want to be a biologist In a world where people are just saying Oh, you know, sex is a spectrum, whatever So he left and he became this He became, I guess, a journalist who runs this site Called Reality's Last Stand And, you know, if we can't defend the reality of sex Then we're we're lost Clearly reality is not the issue here Whose expression is that? Uh, Reality is what um, continues to be true Even if you don't believe it (laughs) Yes (laughs) I don't remember who said that, but yes so, reality is not the issue, because reality goes on being reality. Clearly yeah. the issue here is what you actually think about it. Right. It's, it's culture, not yeah. science. And how
1: much does your culture conform to the real, or live in opposition to pulling in the opposite direction?
0: Or, like, what is your culture doing, real or not real? Remember, like, in the plague, where they used to wear those masks with the long noses, yeah. because they had these, all these beliefs and how, like, yeah. disease spread. What's really happening is almost irrelevant. Uh In the sense that, you know, you're going to do based on what, how you interpret. That's right.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get away from that interpretive piece.
0: I I just don't understand where this impulse comes from. This allergy to gender. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, remember that's the mechanism of female oppression. So they can, they they can never defend it. They can never defend this idea Mm -hmm. that there's a, that there's a necessary cultural instantiation of this reality. They say reality should be enough on its own. It's like reality ain't done shit. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's not to put too fine a point on it, but it's like if reality were enough, none of this would have ever happened. That's right. Like the gametes, none of that has changed in, in right. the last ten years, in right. the last hundred thousand years, none of that has changed. Yeah. And yet here we are with like laws mm-hmm. in California that say a man can just identify himself right? into a woman's prison. That's right. We're interpreting
1: sex differently. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. We're interpreting this this division, this 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 this, two-ness, this duality right. differently. So. So Joan seems to have no awareness of this, of how this position has actually created the situation she herself objects to. She seems to think that as long as you have good old sex to fall back on, there's no need to worry about what a woman is. But if that were true, like, this wouldn't be happening. Exactly. Right? I mean, like we absolutely need to, need to defend the language, because the language is where it starts. I've said this before, I'll say it again. The men who desire to, or pretending to, whichever their motives are, whichever it's whatever it is, to be women. They don't say, please treat me like a woman, except when, you know, except when sex matters. They're not saying that. They're not... This movement is not about that. Like, I mean, is, are, the feminists, are, the, are the feminists saying that we can... That's where we should go. They're saying that's where we should get to. We're mm-hmm. just saying, I, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know... Like, right now, the movement says, if I say I'm a woman, that means I'm female. And that's the laws we have that are reflecting that. Yeah. And that's how you get to the point where, in California... They hand out condoms in a female prison to the women? Yeah. Because because there's men in there and women have been impregnated. Female like <laughs> prisoners. <laughs> yes. By by trans women in prison. By intact males in prison. Yes. 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 Because that's the law right now in California. This is the other thing that really annoys me about this whole the calling people like us or Kelly J anti-feminist because if you go to an event if where you watch one of these Let Women Speak events, it's not about the policing of stereotypes. These yeah. women get up there and they say, they tell their stories. This conflict is not about anything other than men using this concept, this bogus concept of gender identity, to go places women don't want them. And women are getting up and they're saying, I don't care how you feel. I don't want you in my locker room. I want a rape crisis central, center to be women only. They want Absolutely. to have a right when I, like, another example that these women talk about a lot, which is something we don't talk about enough in our society, is care work. Like, oh, if women, yeah. if you're housebound and you have someone who comes and takes care of your intimate needs, with these laws being like this, you no longer have the right to insist that that person is female. That's terrifying. That's, it's, because if you need care
1: work, you're inherently vulnerable. Yeah. You're vulnerable that way, and you're female, and you have some yeah. an address saying, I'm a woman yeah. coming to take care of you and take you to the bathroom.
0: Right. Yeah. And maybe some people are not comfortable with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's use our language in a way that we can afford everyone to be comfortable with yeah. it. Yep. Like, I can imagine in a lot of circumstances where it would not make a difference to me. <laughs> but I can imagine other circumstances where it would make a big difference to me. Right. And part of that's going to be generational. That's, right? That's a good point, yeah. Right? And that's fine, too. So, I, I just, I, 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 ugh. <laughs> it's so frustrating because I mean I take their point that like it sounds like people who are gender critical are really saying I mean it's really hard to draw the line between my position and Michael Mill's position because I don't think you should teach this in school I don't think you should tell children that if they feel like don't feel like a stereotypical girl then they're not a girl I think that's dangerous like it's I pernicious yeah it's hard to sort of say that and be like this is not hateful. I I, I feel like it's difficult yeah. to avoid that criticism. I feel like uh, we're thoroughly canceled. Yeah. Well, I feel like that it
1: really does come down to that. It, that it is a difference of culture, and we are arguing about the good, and that talking about it at the level of law and policy is just too is too far along. Mm. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I really yeah. think politics is downstream from culture. Yes, it we're is. so based. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah, I, I think that
1: you're right that the fight over the language really matters and that gender critical feminists are wrong to think that you can just let go of the meaning of the word woman and yet still somehow win the policies and the laws that you want to protect the female sex because language is an expression of culture and the law is downstream from culture so you change the culture and change the language the law will eventually catch up so i think kelly J is right to fight for the word woman and that trans activists trying to win the word is like, you know, that parable of the camel who wants to get in the tent and he just asks to like stick his nose oh. in. It's like, I'm cold. i just going to stick my nose in. And then like, if you just let the nose come in, then it's like, well now actually the rest of my head's kind of cold. Can I put my head in? And then, and then before you know it, the camel is completely inside the tent and he kicks you out, you know? And so is it a slippery slope argument? Absolutely. But <laughs> that, that parable exists for a reason. Like that can happen. And I, I do think that the word, you know, the word woman is sort of the nose. Going in the tent, yeah, and yeah. It's, and that's that's the image of like something coming into your space that you don't want to come in your space. And why do you say yes to the nose? Well, because it's small. Because you're trying to be nice, you know. And it's like I grew up being the nice yes person. Ah. I know what this looks like. I know the, you know, uh the emotion of having to say to say no to someone and hurt their feelings, and and how you know it's just easier to just just give a little, just give a little, and it's it, yeah, it's not worth it. Um, Our older text today is a letter written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton to her friend Lucy Stone. Uh, The letter goes by the rather inauspicious title, Conceived in Disgust, Brought Forth in Agony. Uh, Stanton, she was born in 1815, died in 1902. She was an American leader in the women's rights movement who advocated for women's suffrage, married women's property rights, as well as married women's rights to their own wages and equal guardianship of their children. And Stanton was best friends with Susan B. Anthony, and they collaborated. Stanton would write speeches while at home, raising her seven children, and then Anthony would go around campaigning and delivering those speeches. Mm. Which, that was cool. And learning about this, like, oh, they partnered up that way. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) So uh, here's a portion of that letter that Stanton wrote. Marriage, as we now have it, is opposed to all God's laws. It is by no means an equal partnership. The silent partner loses everything. On the domestic sign, the existence of a second person is not recognized by even the ordinary abbreviation Co. There is the establishment of John Jones. Perhaps his partner supplies all the sense and the senses, but no one knows who she is or whence she came. She is nameless, for a woman has no name. She is Mrs. John or James, Peter or Paul, just as she changes masters. Like a southern slave, she takes the name of her owner. Many people consider this a very small matter— but it is the symbol of the most cursed monopoly on this footstool, a monopoly by man of all the rights, the life, the liberty and happiness of one half of the human family, all womankind. For what man can honestly deny that he has not a secret feeling that where his pleasure and woman's seem to conflict, the woman must be sacrificed. And what is worse, woman herself has come to think so too. And I, I found that a fascinating quote. Um, Stanton is describing the way that men use language to make women the silent partner who has no name and the woman's name which is a symbol of her identity was subsumed into the man's name so her name and her identity disappears and is silenced for the sake of the man his identity is prioritized and she's just along for the ride. And while this is obviously a different set of circumstances from the, the war of the words that we're experiencing today, it does have something in common with it. There are men who identify as women and seek to appropriate and apply the word woman to themselves. And when they do this, they empty the word woman of its true meaning and content. And when women protest this theft and falsehood, they are either silenced as bigots or told in Stanton's words, many people consider this a very small matter, you know, which is belittling. It's another way of saying, get over it. So while women in Stanton's day lost their names to what she calls the monopoly by man once they married, today some men are trying to use the word woman in a way that ruins it for us. They're attempting to monopolize the language again, just in an inverted direction, but it has the similar effect of female erasure. And as Stanton wrote, where his pleasure and woman's seem to conflict, the woman must be sacrificed. And what is worse, the woman herself has come to think so too. And that's the agreement of the gender-critical feminists who are willing to sacrifice the name woman for the pleasure of certain men whom they do not want to judge or offend. You're right. And, and if Stanton thought that it was significant and symbolically meaningful to fight for women being represented by their own names, by their own personal identity, shouldn't we think it's worth it to fight for the word woman itself, since that is our collective identity? And, and when feminists say, you know, don't be an identitarian, I feel like that's akin to saying, like, don't be a prude. You know, it's what people say when they want you to give up something precious, to treat something important as if it were trivial.
0: Mmm. Yeah. No, that's... I, I, the don't be a prude analogy is very is very important because it is... Both of those expressions, uh, don't be a prude, don't be an identitarian, are saying you're judgy. Mm, yes.
1: They're
0: yeah. both saying...
1: You're excluding me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No,
1: you're... (laughs) Don't exclude me. Don't exclude me. Yeah, it's the same thing as don't... You know, that that predators will use on girls, don't be shy. You know, that's the line that online predators use on teen girls, don't be shy. That's the hard... You know, it's the same. Don't exclude me. Let me in. Let me in. I mean, what is this all about? Men want to come in.
0: (laughs) I mean, this woman herself has come to think so, too. I mean, there is this... uh, and This is the irony about this situation, is that... That's basically, that. the implication of women going along is the is the constant trope that uh, liberals fling at conservative women. Right? They say, no, you're supporting going along the patriarchy. With your husband. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're upholding the patriarchy. <laughs> you married, you happily married, mm. you know, women have, raising their own kids. You're upholding the patriarchy. Mm. And... So, who's being accommodationist to the patriarchy? I mean, I feel like letting men openly go around pretending to, you know, indulging their feelings about being women is is inc- incredibly non-feminist in the sense that, you know, it, it's just indulging someone's whims at, the, at, a, at a cost to, you know, not even considering what the costs are. I just don't see how this can be a liberal issue. Mm. I, unless we've now decided that liberalism means you know you are entitled to have all stigma removed because it makes you feel bad i'm not the a liberal it's anymore going,
1: yeah you're not a liberal anymore because be, you see that, the value but, of
0: stigma <laughs> but well i see the signal i see that yeah. like i mean we have data that shows you if you finish high school and you don't have a child until you're married from a social science perspective we know the outcomes are better yeah
1: yeah all right so stigma can be a sign of sort of collective intelligence of society you know like, don't go down that path.
0: Right. Or, you know, if you go down that path, but be aware there are costs. And one of the way we, we signal those costs is we look at you funny. Right. I mean, I don't know. Humans are, you know, animals. We have to that's invent right. these, like, kind of crude mechanisms. But, <laughs> I mean, people... But that's the thing about this, is that this whole movement is working its way through... By people being stigmatized in the sense, like, who stigmatizes the people who object? Right. So we are being told there are costs. I mean, what is this whole J.K. Right. Rally thing? But yeah. a signal saying, you speak up, we're going to hurt you. That's right. They're we, using stigma. They're using yeah, it. They're they are using, they know this work. We know that humans tend to want to conform and be a member of the group and don't want to be ostracized. Mm-hmm. So they are sending the signal. This but This way there are costs. Yeah. So we know that works. So like the the idea that like we want to live in a non-judgmental society. Okay. That's, that's just kind of bullshit because I mean.
1: (laughs) Well, I think there's a sense in which like judgment and, and stigma are an inevitable feature of reality in the way that like sort of the center and the periphery are kind of an inevitable feature. It's just how things are. So like, will you wield stigma well? Or will it shoot around and be like, you know, taking people out who should not be taken out reputation wise is what I meant.
0: Alright, what are we doing next time? I think we're going to talk I, about contraception. Yeah, we're going to do contraception. From the uh, feminist who thought men could have an orgasm without ejaculating. Whoops! <laughs> 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 to Mary Harrington's position that women should not be on the pill. This will be very spicy. This is going to be very spicy. We're already <laughs> cancelled, so contraception is, like, contraception is like... contraception is it. Contraception is like... It's like a no... Yeah. No one's gonna even care. Yeah, when we're so well, canceled. We can now. say
1: whatever we want now. We can. We're old enough.
0: We're old enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.